0: Hi, this is Matt Slepin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is with Cheryl Palmer, the Chairman and CEO of Taylor Morrison Homes, a top 10 home builder in a public company since their IPO in 2013. Cheryl tells her story, the story of the growth of Taylor Morrison during her 13-year tenure, and importantly, how her company has adapted the business to COVID-19 and her thoughts on the home building business going forward. I recorded this interview a few weeks back on October 5th, 2020. This is only our second home building conversation on Leading Voices. The first was a conversation with Larry Webb, the CEO of the new home company, back in June of last year. I loved the conversation with Larry and now the conversation with Cheryl. Her passion and particularly the company's commitment to a focus on the consumer resonates deeply as does her story that starts her career on a line at McDonald's and then in an office down the hall from Ray Kroc and finds its way into the single family home business. Her focus on the consumer comes from inspiration from Ray Kroc and then getting into the business being sales and marketing roles prior to real estate roles. And once again, we hear how a CEO has pivoted a company both to the immediate term crisis, the midterm planning, and then long-term effects of COVID. I sometimes recommend other podcasts on our show, I was recently a guest on a podcast published by the Bay Area based Registry magazine called the Real Perspectives Podcast. I was interviewed by their publisher, Vlad Basanik, on their October 2nd episode. If you want to hear me on the other side of the interview table, check it out. I've also recently listened to my friends, retail consultant David Greensfelder, Jeff Berkus from Federal Realty, and Jordan Moss from Catalyst Housing Group on Vlad's podcast. All were great conversations, which I recommend highly. Thanks for joining us for this episode. And if you enjoy this conversation, please forward it to a friend. Please subscribe to the podcast. And if you have a few minutes, rate us on iTunes. Also, feel free to email me with comments, suggestions, and questions at my day job at Partners at matt at TerraSearchPartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Cheryl. Well, thank you for coming on to Leading Voices. Really, really appreciate having you.
1: Of course. My pleasure to be here.
0: This is the second Leading Voices with a home builder. So you're underrepresented in terms of our conversations, and we haven't had a home builder conversation since COVID. Wow. And the world has changed. A lot. So I want to talk to you about both of those subjects through the conversation today. But maybe the place to start is you're just telling our audience who you are, but also what Taylor Morrison is.
1: You bet. Well, I'm Cheryl Palmer. So thank you very much for having me. Like I said, I'm I'm flattered and humbled to be here. And I am the uh, chairman and CEO of Taylor Morrison Home Corporation. Um, We're a national uh, builder across the U.S. Actually, we're the fifth largest builder in the U.S. We build in about nine states, 17, 18 markets across the country, generally a little bit of the smile, what I call the smile states, but we're a home builder and a developer. We're really what I call a community planner, developer, And because the planning of what people are looking for today is so important in in their community. Um, That's even become more important through COVID, and we build homes at all price points for consumers that are looking for their first home, we have a significant part of the business, which is that 55 plus, those lifestyle communities where you've deserved this and now it's time for you. Move up, luxury, a little bit of everything. But our real bread and butter, I'd say, is that first time move up and the active adult business.
0: Uh-huh. And does that differentiate? I think of the publics as a game unto themselves in the home building industry. Does that differentiate between the larger builders of where they stand in the different product types or the amount of development they do versus home building?
1: You know, everyone's strategy is a little different. (laughs) Um, You know, you have some nationals that are very focused on one consumer type. I would say a number of the nationals. We build for a number of different consumers. You know, the, the, the one that is a little unique is the active adult. Not every builder builds for that segment mm-hmm. because it's really the house is almost, I hate to say it as a home builder, the house is almost the afterthought. You are finding a community where there's people like you with the activities where you can really enjoy this chapter. And so it's really about the lifestyle and that connection. And then you can find a home if it's right for you. And so it's, it's different than your typical subdivision. So not all builders build these, you know, I mean, some of our 55 plus communities could be around the selling cycle could be 10 years, mm-hmm. thousands of units.
0: Right. They're huge developments. And you worked at Dell Webb years ago, which was one of the pioneers in that business, I think.
1: I did. I've actually had two very fortunate stints in my career in that sector It's probably why I enjoy it so much because I grew up in it. But one was Dell Webb and I was there for a number of years in marketing. And that's where I got a little bit of the bug of home building when I went out to the field and went into sales management. And then I left there to go to Blackhawk. And actually a lot of people don't know, but Ken Baring, who just recently passed, Ken Baring, I would say, was actually the real founder of the lifestyle back in Florida, the Lifestyle Active Adult Communities. He was later known for his Blackhawk community up in Northern California. But when Ken brought me to Blackhawk to open up the Somerset communities, it was getting back to kind of his love of building those communities in, the, in Florida back in the 60s. I've been very fortunate in my career to work for some really inspirational leaders that have quite the vision around building these 55-plus communities.
0: Cheryl, I have a funny story that I think will have some meaning to you. Years ago, early in my career, I was developing what was then called congregate care communities. As we were seeking land opportunities, we looked to put a congregate care high-rise in these senior leisure communities like the Dell Webb communities that you were developing. I vividly remember meeting one of your prime competitors, the developer of the Leisure World Communities, a guy named Ross Cortese. My partner, Ken Becker, and I had a great meeting with Mr. Cortese, and it made all the sense in the world to add congregate care into his properties. Anyhow, I'll never forget, the meeting went well, and at the end, he leaned over to me. I was then all of, I think, 26, and he said in a godfather kind of voice, I wish I could do a better Brando. He said, Matt, I'd love to do business with you. I want you to be part of the family. Anyhow, it was just an early, colorful career moment that I'll never forget.
2: It
1: gets in your blood, Matt. Mm-hmm. It really does. And, you know, when I started with probably Sun City, when I was kind of, when I went out to the field, I mean, I was just a, hard to imagine, but I was just a young kid. Right. And I was, you know, selling to these people that were 30 years older than me or managing people that were selling. And you do, you do become part of the family.
0: Mm-hmm. It's totally true. And I bet that getting started in that business where the creation of community is so important might change how you approach a normal community and community planning, because you got to think about the amenities in a more intense way than the standard suburban community development. I don't know if that's true.
1: It is. I mean, certainly if you're building a subdivision of 20, 30, 50 homes, Mm -hmm. you're going to plan the community a little different, a lot different than if you're building a community that has a thousand homes and golf courses or country club, I mean, just, you know, a whole different amenity package. But there's a lot to be learned about kind of that big master plan and really understanding your consumer. Mm -hmm and the experience that you can create. Because my home, I live, you know, there's 25 homes in here. I mean, you still have to understand the consumer and it doesn't matter if these all these amenities, but what's gonna most resonate with that customer and who is your audience? How do you market to them? How do you create this journey for them that resonates with who they are and making this a special experience? If it's your first house, Mm -hmm. and you don't have any idea, or you've bought 10, and now this one, you're nervous because you think it might be your last house. So so it's still all about people. Mm -hmm. And as long as you keep that thread consistent, I think it changes the way you look at community planning.
0: Uh A question for you about that is, we'll come back to this point, but I think this is a traditionalist business in a lot of respects. And I don't know if if the other leaders in the business come from thinking about the consumer or come from understanding how to manufacture and get lots of business done. Do you bring more of a perspective on the starting with a consumer orientation to your leadership? Do you think? I hate to say it, but I do
1: (laughs) (laughs) because we do my favorite piece that we've shared with the team is any meeting you're in, there should be an empty chair Hmm. and that chair should be the customers because if they're not in the room representing themselves. We need to make sure that we're properly representing them as well, because if you do that, I believe it actually allows you to create a better financial result, because people are willing to pay for what makes sense for them. You know, we started an initiative. Wow, it's been over a year now, probably two years in the making, and a year since we've introduced it, and it's called Love the Customer. And this probably. Underscores your point because it took me a long time to say that out loud publicly because mm-hmm. the word love in our industry feels a little squishy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. But our team gets it. And loving the customer is about their internal customer and the external customer. And it's not about saying yes when you're supposed to say no. We, this is a business, but there's a, a right way and a wrong way. And so, yeah, I think that we definitely have a consumer bend and appreciation of making sure they're in the process and that what we're doing is delivering a place where they can create lifelong memories.
0: Hmm. Fair deal. So there's two things I wanna talk on the podcast about today. (laughs) So one is I wanna talk about COVID and what that means for your industry and your company, of course. And then two is I wanna talk about you and your leadership journey and what you've done through your career. Let's start with COVID, if that's okay. This is a discontinuous, painful change. And one thing you told me when we started our conversation a few weeks ago is home building is an antiquated industry, and maybe COVID's the silver lining to take us out of the dark ages. So maybe start there and think about what COVID's (laughs) meant to you and what's been going on and changes.
1: Well, and it kind of ties, interestingly enough, to your last question. But when COVID first happened, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, where were you in OJ? I mean, you just just remember, remember, right? (laughs) And I actually had a board meeting, like two days. I had my whole board in town. It was really the last traveling anybody did. And it was that night when I had them all over for dinner that, you know, the president was on TV and talking about this thing called COVID. And I think it was when it became real. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so when it first happened, you almost, for me, it was almost going in down to like that innate been through some tough cycles, Mm -hmm. preserve cash. This could get really ugly. Mm -hmm. Let's make sure every house we start that that person can qualify. And then the mortgage industry just kind of got turned on its head. So the first 30, 40 days was rocky. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was bumpy and it was just all about cash preservation and making sure that probably before you could reserve cash kind of reverse order is the team and the team is safe. So it was sending them home that Monday, making sure they were all had the ability to be productive and work from home. We had just completed an acquisition 30 days earlier mm-hmm. and we had, you know, 750 new team members.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: even though we have this great communication vehicle with this daily huddle, love the customer huddle, and we weren't prepared to send, you know, our 2,000 employees home and our new 750 home. So first it was just making sure they're okay and that we could just keep the wheels going. Hey, right.
0: one question to that. When you say that and you think of the employees, you're not thinking corporate employees because you got hammer swinger people too. So you're thinking up and down the food chain of everyone being home and being safe.
1: Yeah. So it, no, it was corporate employees, even though the trades aren't our employees, mm-hmm. They're part of the family, as you said. Mm -hmm. And so when you're thinking about safety and protocols, it's not just our own team members that are on our payroll. It's how can our trades feel secure Mm -hmm. in our field operations? How can our salespeople greet customers when you have this COVID thing that we were learning about in real time? And so, you know, we went on lockdown. We sent everybody home. We were, at some level, we were blessed because... Home building in totality in most parts of the country were required business, essential business. And so most people continued to go to work. But if that was the case, how did you do it safely? So in the field, it was very, very careful protocols. We went into this daily routine with our leadership to put all the protocols in place. I think we actually met every morning, every evening. We did that for probably four weeks. Mm -hmm. Make sure all the protocols were in place. Communicated with our team. I did this company-wide huddle once a week. I mean, it was all about just communicating because this was uncharted waters, right?
0: And you wouldn't know how long it was going to last either. So this is hunkered no, down. We
1: would have been back to work by you know early summer, right? I mean, I was I couldn't have been more wrong. But then you start realizing everybody processes it differently. I mean, some people think this is silly and some people are terrified and some people have family members that are ill. So there's just so much emotion. So safety first, we get that, but what it did because safety was such a driver for us and not, you know, I think most builders went by appointment only, probably not all of them. And maybe there are parts of the country, we didn't have to, but we just felt like, you know, we're gonna go there and see how long it lasts. But what it did do is it drove innovation. And we were very fortunate that late last year, we had introduced a new website. And that website, Intranet, had imagined a very potential of a virtual environment. Hmm. Probably not in, you know, six, three to six months, but it had imagined that the consumer wants to communicate with us differently. And so it had the infrastructure that allowed us, once again, putting the customer in the room with us and making sure they were safe, it allowed us to communicate with them in a number of ways that had never been imagined in our industry.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So we probably did three very quickly. The first was this online appointment system and pretty simple, right? You do that in so many, you make a reservation for dinner online. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but we just hadn't done that as an industry. you went online you selected the community and you can make an appointment and you can make an appointment to do whatever Matt you wanted to do. If you wanted to come see me for a private tour, you could do that. Mm. If you wanted to make an appointment for a phone call, you could do that. If you want to make an appointment just to write a sales contract because you already knew what you wanted, you could do that. And then we would send it to you virtually or you could come in for that personal appointment. You could get help on a virtual tour. So whatever you needed and you didn't have to go through three people. You just made the appointment to meet with me. Mm -hmm. And you immediately got a confirmation. The take-up was amazing. I mean, within weeks, we had thousands and thousands of appointments. So what we heard from the customer is, yeah, it's about time. (laughs) (laughs) This is how we want to talk to you, right? And probably 80% of those appointments were made to come into the community for a private tour. (laughs) So they still needed some social interaction, but we just made it so easy. The second tool, which came a few weeks later, was we piloted self-guided tours. So we had inventory homes across the country. And you could go on the website and see that in the Bay, we had, in this community, we had two inventory homes. And you could set an appointment to see it at six in the morning or seven at night. And we would send you a code and you could access the house by yourself. Hmm. And so you didn't have to, if you were nervous, you didn't want to have another person there, you could engage with the home on your own. And once again, tremendous. We didn't, before we even started marketing it, people just saw it on the website and they started, competition did a lot of it, but then we actually had a lot of customers do it
2: too.
0: huh. Hey, we'll I have a question about that. Did you have like people watching the people in there to make sure they were behaving properly? Any? Nope. No, no. cameras. Give them, let them go okay cool
1: no cameras and you know i'll tell you months into it we've not had one unfortunate event good they had to give us their license i mean we we know enough about them that it would all be pinned back to them we know when they enter the house it's all systematized but no cameras
0: and i keep interrupting you but the next question about both of those is that higher traffic than you had before or is it just high traffic in those venues
1: It's different traffic. So the exciting thing is Mm -hmm. both on the appointment and then the self-guided tour and the reservations I'll tell you about, we found like 70% of them. This was their first contact with us. They have never been in a sales office.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. So it led me to believe that we may never have seen these people. Right. So pretty exciting. Once, and I'll come right back to it in a second on COVID, you know. Want to hear about the
0: third one too. So yeah. The
1: third one is a reservation. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. This one's really exciting because now you went and toured the house and you left it. You can go back online and do a 24-hour hold and say, I want this house. And you have 24 hours to convert it to a contract.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And once again, you can come in for the contract. We can docusign it. What's happened probably half the time is they ended up once they made that reservation and we start talking with them. Some of them didn't go through with that house. They went through with a different house. Mm -hmm. but we still got them. But what's happened is from the time we first met this person, like in a self-guided tour, didn't really meet him, but we met him online to a contract. I mean, we've seen this happen in just days. What used to take weeks and months Mm -hmm. is now happening in days. And it's because we're allowing them to drive to tell us how they want to talk with us. Uh So it's, it's been tremendous. So we got all those tools in place, but I would tell you that by May 15th, We were shocked at the demand and the response, and it wasn't for one reason, Matt. It was so many different drivers, but we have just seen year over year tremendous, tremendous results, Uh, May, June, July, August, September. We haven't reported September yet, so I can't talk about that one, but the demand has been really, really strong and um, significantly outsized. From all expectations, and it's interest rates, but it's not somebody's not going to move just because it's a low interest rate.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There has to be another driver. So this could be some folks that you know have been living in this apartment, or the space they're in doesn't work, or they need their kids are staying home, or both. You know, two adults are trying to home off. It's just all these different reasons. Or I need better outdoor space. Mm-hmm. But the demand has been tremendous.
0: I'm assuming the demand driver largely is that move back to the suburbs, move back to a less dense environment, move to a single family home. The American dream might be back again in that way because of COVID.
1: I think there's a lot of truth to that. But I'd still suggest that there's not this flight from urban just because I want to get suburban. Mm -hmm. It's generally accompanied with something else because we're seeing a lot of people Urban came back last, but Mm -hmm. we're seeing people come in and buy right behind them. The job environment allows people to live further because Mm -hmm. some people might not be driving back to the office anymore. So a lot of flexibility, but you're right. There is this kind of, I want space and it could be space within my confined quarters. It could be, I don't want to go up and down an elevator. There's a lot of different drivers out there today with the convenience of, I'm not worried about my commute as
0: much. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause the commute may be three days a week, not five days a week. And I could cope with a longer commute three days a week plus three days a week. Aren't the same for everybody. Therefore traffic may not be right. so bad.
1: It's exactly. And some people are being told, which is a whole different subject, you know, which I think will be the issue of the century or the decade for sure is, you know, some people are moving out of state because they've been told that, you know, their new world will be remote. That won't be us, but I think, you know, I think this will be a dilemma companies go through for the next many, many months and maybe years.
0: Uh And how much market research are you doing or is the industry doing to understand each of those drivers and how permanent they may be?
1: Well, I'm so glad you asked that because, you know, not just this flight from Urban, we've been actually doing research, once again, customer first since week one, right? And we've been talking to people on the internet that have come onto our site. We've been talking to traffic that have walked in our door and to our buyers Mm -hmm. and really trying to understand why would you buy today? And you can imagine the reason week one or two of COVID is very different than now and what's important to them. And, you know, technology is kind of off the charts. A lot of people just didn't have the technological needs they had needed in their home or in their living environment. Another one, which is like kind of they've been, you know, week to week, they might shift, but really top three is health and wellness. I don't know what the future brings and I need, everyone talks about what we're doing to offices and schools, but, you know, my home is my castle. I need to make sure I feel safe here. And so that lit led us through that research back in August, we introduced uh, LiveWell, which is really about healthy air, healthy water, paint, materials in the home. That we've now have standard in all our new homes mm. because it's so critical. And it's really been interesting. It's been most important to the millennial. This whole healthy, you know, notion of healthy living.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's been important across all consumers, but there's really been this high demand uh, on the millennial buyer.
0: Interesting. Let me ask a question about the the technological way to get to know you. that You just described the three initiatives and I've never bought a new home. So I'll admit to this, never been through the process, but I'm thinking of a Yiddish word, handling, how much handling happens in the home buying experience with you. And if it's online, you give up your ability to handle a little bit because you're just buying a price. I just bought a Tesla, so I didn't get to handle it, but it was wonderful because I don't want to do that. Is that in your business?
1: Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. In today's demand, no, you don't get much of that at all. Uh (laughs) Now, over time, you're right. Okay, that will be part of the process. Because for some people, that's an important part of the process. But today, there's just, the demand is so intense. I mean, we are holding back releases to assure our ability to bring them to market and knowing what they're going to cost. So... Um, I was at a grand opening this weekend where we released six houses. I think we had 15 people pre-qualified and we did a drawing. And that's pretty much like in Phoenix, how we're releasing all of our homes right now.
0: Well, and and when you talk about demand, is this demand year over year as compared, or because you say we're surprised, is that you're surprised in COVID or you're surprised as compared to last year, which was a somewhat normal year? Both. Absolute and relative.
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, and we, sh- we should not be because if I think about the macro picture before COVID, we started the year strong, no mm-hmm. doubt about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all the many, not all, many of the kind of economic attributes or wind at our back are still there today. I mean, the demographics are in our favor, right? We've been underbuilding as an industry for years. So right. that's we've known, but our industry has always been very dependent on a good job market. And Mm so that kind of overlay is where I think it's most unexpected. I mean, we still have millions of people out of work today, Mm -hmm. but the people that have been out of work to date um, have generally been more service, I would say probably 50, 60, Thousand, you know, average income, which is probably renters, not buyers. Right. Now we'll see as either this productivity shift continues forward and companies take a middle layer out, (laughs) or depending on what happens with stimulus and it becomes socially acceptable to right size organizations, we'll see. I mean, the airlines, those are homeowners. Mm-hmm. So where we've been and where we're going, I still think there's a lot of wind at our back. The question is, is it strong enough to overcome the wind in our face on employment?
0: Mm-hmm. And talk about the other subjects relating to home buildings and antiquated industry. Are there other changes that came because of this that moves us out of the dark ages and or define the dark ages clearly so I know what the the, the future might look like?
1: So the dark ages, when I talk about the dark ages, have generally been around the building science mm-hmm. side of mm-hmm. the business. And I would say the consumer relationship side as well. We don't have the best reputation. I hate to even say it out loud, but I think it was second to mm-hmm. car salesman. I mean, we, we don't have this, here's this most important decision purchase a consumer makes and the reputation in our industry was not good. Mm-hmm. which is really why we started this love the customer approach. It, it should be better. You should enjoy this process, but the building science piece of it. So I think we've got, you know, we're early days, but I feel fear. I think we're just on like the edge of a true structural shift in how we sell houses, but on the building sciences, you know, we've as an industry been working on it for years mm-hmm. and, Um, Generally, when you think about a man, it's like, where does manufacturing product and consumer choice come together? Because, you know, manufacturing variety is not its friend. What's its real friend is a replicated high number of, you know, repetition. So Mm -hmm. if I could build that same house exactly the same way Mm -hmm. up and down the street, then that lends itself to a great, efficient manufacturing product. Enter the customer. And it doesn't, it's not quite so easy. So when you did your Tesla, for (laughs) example, you had so many choices, right? But you didn't all of a sudden get to say, well, I don't like any of your colors. Can I bring my own to the party? Right. And that's kind of what the consumer does in their decision. I don't like that wall. So can I, can I change it or can I put a window in it? And generally you can't in a production environment, but that's been the complexity around this high production environment. You know, there's some good work that's been done, but there's a, so far it hasn't been a cost advantage. It's been a time advantage because if you can build the house indoors in a controlled environment and then just bring the wall panels out, you can generally erect them a lot quicker. But if you can't get the other trades behind you and you lose the 10 days you picked up, Mm And I'm not sure I want to pay 20% more for it. So that's where we have to bridge that gap. And there's still some work to be done. Like I said, a lot of good work being done, but we're not there yet. We still generally 90% of the new homes that are built today in the country are, you know, one stick at a time.
0: Yeah. And interesting the way it's been done for hundreds of years. And, and, and when I think of home building, I think of two processes you identified, both. One, it's a consumer product, and the other, it's a manufacturing business, so different than the rest of real estate. But let me push back on one of the comments you made, which is the consumer wants some differentiation, and you said, within their house. And if they care about the outside, then they're like ego-oriented or something. But if I'm a member of a community, I'm a bike rider, and I'm, I'm riding by some new house communities in Santa Rosa right now, Right. And as I see it, I go, oh, it was a farm, and now it's gonna be boom, 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 all the same. And sameness from the outside as a community member just kind of is yucky. Differentiation from the outside is exciting, right? That's how neighborhoods grow versus.
1: Right, and that, but that variety is money.
0: (laughs) Right, I know that. So
1: now let me introduce our newest business segment. That's our build to rent business, Mm -hmm. where it's single family detached single story homes. They're all wanted, but they're still going to be in a lifestyle community. So it's a gated, amenitized community, but 100% of them are for rent.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But they're all going to be built exactly the same way. There'll be one and two bedrooms. They'll all have exactly the same features. There will not be a consumer kind of in the mix until it's time to lease it. Right. And so then you think about the productivity that I can get building those units is very different. Then, when you go and buy a home, you pick the lot from us, you pick the home, you go into the design center, you might spend as much in the design center as you did on your house.
0: Right. It's interesting because my desire as this bike rider passing by communities conflicts with my desire as an advocate for housing affordability, particularly for first time <laughs> homebuyers, because the, I know that those communities I ride by bike by and go, yuck are actually those communities that are affordable to people who really want to live in a home and own a home and they're excited to do so.
1: Yeah. And you know, Matt, I mean, this is going to taste a little foreign on my tongue, but I mean, if you think about the resale market, people don't have choice. They go, they see it, they like it, they buy it, right? Many builders strategy is exactly that. There is no choice. Everything's included. This is what you get. Take it or leave it.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Maybe you can pick the color of the counter or the color of the carpet. I mean. And generally that's where we are with that more affordable because that's what allows us to address that consumer right. because that's more important to them than the color of the cabinets, right? Is mm-hmm. making sure they can have home ownership. But as you move through the food chain, not everybody feels that way. The active adult consumer is, is the one worth talking about. I mean, they're usually buying down, mm-hmm. They don't need as much square footage. And I call what they like their little jewel box, but they know what they want. Mm -hmm. And they're willing to make the trade-offs in square footage to have it amenitized and they're willing to pay for it. Just like the lot with the right view is exactly what they want and they're willing to pay for it. So you have to know your consumer group and then be able to deliver to that need and demand. Mm -hmm.
0: And last question, I want to hear about your career and how you got here. But we've talked about COVID as a driver. And, you know, I live in fire country here in California, and we've built in fire country. And I'm curious how you think about that, if you think about that and what that means for future development, particularly in states in the West where, although I think both the West and the Smile states are, have the risk of some burning.
1: No, for sure they do. You know, I would tell you, like we have um, a Sacramento business and we have a Bay business. And I would tell you that we rarely would develop against, you know, the high rated fire zones. Mm
0: -hmm. I'm not
1: saying we've never done it. And building materials have certainly moved on. If you think about tile roofs and, um, you know, wrapped eaves. I mean, there's a lot of newness in the building science, but honestly, as a company, we don't find ourselves in those areas very often. And if we do, there's going to be a very deliberate approach on how and what we would build the cost of insurance for us to do Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And more importantly for the consumer, I mean, you live there, you know, better than I do, but I was talking to um, one of my team members who's responsible for all of California. And, he lives in Northern California, probably in a highly rated fire zone. Mm-hmm. And I think his insurance has quadrupled in the last two, three years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we don't have a lot. We don't certainly have any density and very, very careful about grassy and wooded areas. Wooded.
0: So let's change subject. I want to hear your story. <laughs> and just quickly, where did you grow up? What kind of background did you bring? And when you grew up, did you like Used Lincoln logs or tinker toys (laughs) knowing that you'd be a builder one day?
1: No, I am. I'm not even sure I could have explained what a home builder was because I think growing up, we moved a lot. I think I was in a half dozen schools before junior high. My parents' career, not military. They were both in clothing. And so it just had us from LA to Georgia to New York, back to LA. I mean, we just moved a lot, but We never built a home because we were always moving and needed a home. So that was kind of the world I knew. Mm -hmm. And um, to be honest, and God bless my mom, who's 92, I wanted a career that would make sure that I wasn't going to do it the way she did. And I was going to be home because I wanted to be there for my kids. Mm -hmm. And she was always traveling and she was always international because she was a designer. So I actually wanted to be a school teacher. And that was my passion. And I was going to do special ed because I had a lot of passion for kids. And my McDonald's upbringing had me me working with young kids. So I had focused in on special ed. And as I was pursuing that dream and working for McDonald's, I was asked to, I had an opportunity to join an advertising agency Mm -hmm. on the fast food side. Um, because they were pitching the Taco Bell
0: account. (laughs) Hey, let's go back for one sec, because you said due to your McDonald's upbringing, does that mean you had Happy Meals or that means you worked the line? I started
1: working at McDonald's at 15. Okay. Because I, you know, I was just a spoiled little kid. I can say now that my mom and dad designed clothes, they brought home clothes, and I wanted to go shopping with my friends. (laughs) And I was just a brat. And so I wanted to make my own money. And so I went to work at McDonald's and before I knew it, I was in management, you know, first I was um, kind of a marketing coordinator, what they called these um, stars and CRs, community representatives, working with kids and hospitals. And then it was kind of fun. And I, when I moved to San Diego to go to school, then I went back to McDonald's to get a job. And then all of a sudden I got, you know, after doing that for a while, that's when my where McDonald's took off and I was the marketing person for San Diego. Mm -hmm. And it was from there that the advertising side, I needed to get advertising, that was it. I needed to get advertising experience to kind of go to the big golden arches in the sky in (laughs) Oakbrook. And I was in San Diego, which was a blessing in itself because that's where Ray Kroc worked. That's where his office was. So I was in the same office with him. And so just lifetime experiences there for sure. And then I got asked to join an advertising agency and first it was on the food side and then it was on the hospitality side. And then it was on the real estate side and I was pitching Dell web and we got the account. So this is years later, right? Got the account. At this point, I never ended up teaching. (laughs) Um, so those, those credentials were no good. Um, And then they asked me to come in house and be their advertising manager. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: that's really where my real estate career began. And that was back in 86, a long, long time ago. And then I loved it, but I really didn't love the whole corporate thing, which was so different than working for an advertising agency where Mm -hmm. you're kind of free and whimsical and This was corporate America. (laughs) And I was going to leave because it just didn't seem to be my flavor. And somebody asked me to come to the field and be a sales manager. I've never sold anything. Well, two weeks later, I had my real estate license and I went to Sun City West.
0: Hang on one sec. Let's go back. So Del Webb was one of the early, we talked about this very at the beginning of this conversation, but Del Webb was one of the first active senior community builders, a lot in Arizona, if not and and Southern Cal, right?
1: Sun City was one of the first opened in 1960. Yep. Before I was Mm -hmm. around. I understand um... that. Kind of. (laughs) And but then the sister to Sun City was Sun City, Sun City West, Sun City Grand. Right. I worked at Sun City West as a sales manager, Uh and then Sun City Grand as the division president. Uh So I had a long career with them. So I went out to the field, and all of a sudden, I think I was you know the ripe age of probably twenty six. There was probably thirty five sales people that worked in this pavilion sales office. Right. The average age was probably somewhere close to 60. I've never sold a day in my life. Wow. <laughs> and I'm going to hit this punk walks in who they report to. So it was a humbling and tremendous experience on really being a servant leader. Mm-hmm. And I could never have a third, a 10th, a hundredth of the knowledge they had, but I had the title and I had a desire to help. And so I learned the business and I could help them. And that's where home building really got in my blood. Mm-hmm. And so I was there as the sales manager. But when you do a thousand sales a year out of one sales office, it's like a 10 year degree.
0: I it. Is <laughs>
1: You experience everything, right? And it's all price points within that consumer, a production that you can never imagine. Very few places in the country today, if any. Of that sort of production. So it was a tremendous, tremendous experience.
0: Uh-huh. Hey, go, go back for one sec. I keep saying this line, but being a sales manager starting out as a sales manager is really different than being a salesperson. The, oh, yeah. the twain are related, but not the same.
2: Biggest
1: debate in our industry today is does a sales manager need to have sales experience? Yes. Where do you think I fall on that one?
0: <laughs> you didn't. <laughs>
1: and. and It's actually different skills. There's a tremendous amount with the greatest respect of ego that's required. Mm -hmm. Ego drive that's Mm -hmm. required Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. sales. You almost want that sale more than your next breath, right? And so you need to feel that and you need to be there to support that. But I had much more joy helping them complete that and get that feeling than getting it myself. Mm -hmm. So there's something to be said for the knowledge that comes with being on the sales floor. But I got that in rapid fire, just seeing that much activity in one place. Mm -hmm. So maybe, you know, you need it if you can't get those kinds of repeats. Uh But I fall on the side. It really comes down to the individual and their leadership capacity.
0: Uh Uh So then you went to Blackhawk and and we'll go quickly through the companies until you get to Taylor Morrison or else we'll be here all night. So
1: Blackhawk, 10 years took what I learned on sales and all of a sudden I'm helping develop communities. You just kind of fake it till you make it a bit. And just, that was a tremendous family, 10 years, great experience, open Somerset communities in Brentwood and Rio Vista. Ken Baring was getting um, to a point that he was considering selling. I was not ready to retire. He Mm -hmm. was.
0: And that was in Northern Cal. Everything was Northern Cal, right? Northern
1: Cal and Brentwood and Rio Vista. Mm -hmm. And, um, Long story short, he was going to sell, he sold Rio Vista, was going to sell Brentwood. The deal didn't happen. Then they came back and asked if I would come to Pulte to run their active adult part of the business. Uh And after I resigned, I had to give a lot of time. This was family. We ended up putting the deal together to buy it. Mm -hmm. So I kind of had both sides of that transaction. It was a lot of fun. And then the day of closings, I moved the keys over to the Northern California team and moved to Arizona. And then I was with Pulte for a number of years on the active adult. Then they restructured, went to Nevada to be an area president when their area president went up to be the COO, Mm -hmm. took over Nevada. And then about two and a half years later, I retired. Maybe two years later, I retired, left Pulte My daughter was a year away from going to college. I had been the consummate Mm -hmm. person I swore I was never going to be. My son was in early high school and I just was going to go home. And I did. Uh And as she graduated high school and was going off to college, my husband said, it's really time for you to get (laughs) out of here. And um, I was getting calls and had an interesting call from what was Morrison Homes, which was a builder here in the U S that was owned by George Wimpey in the UK.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And first time I said, no, I wasn't ready. Second time I was intrigued because it was, a, I had no international experience. I met them all. I met the UK contingent and I'm like, well, this is something I haven't done now. This is, you know, kind of in the D day of the world falling apart, right? 2006. But I felt like I had lived through Vegas when Vegas went down. I mean, that was the epicenter of, you know, the downturn. And so I thought I had something to offer. So I took it.
0: So you had been in Vegas at Pulte.
1: I was the regional president.
0: As the crash was beginning to happen. And that's when I you retired? Did they? Two,
1: I moved there two weeks before the world came to an end <laughs> in home building. And I think if you look up, you know, drop prices, it has my picture on it. So yeah, that was back in 2005, or 2004 and five. And then I left in 05. And I started with Morrison in 06. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like 15 minutes after I started with Morrison, they started talking with this other UK company. There was only two UK companies that had North American Mm -hmm. holdings. I'm like, I just started. What are you talking about? Well, Lo and behold, these two companies merged, and it was we had been a private sub of a UK uh-huh.
2: public,
0: right?
1: And they merged, and about 30 days after the merger, that was in 2007, uh-huh. I got asked to be the CEO
0: of the merged companies. Was the other company Taylor? Or is that something else?
1: It was Taylor Woodrow, uh huh. And then I changed the name to Taylor Morrison so that all team members felt. integral part of this new go forward company. Mm -hmm. And uh, wow, we were barely a top 20 company back then. And I don't think either company would have survived independently through the downturn, but strength in numbers. We were, I think, 2,200 employees. We went down to 600. It was horrible. (laughs) Horrible. And then slowly but surely, we started to rebuild it. Then the UK
2: hey, go, said, "Sorry
0: to keep interrupting you, but go slowly for a second because I'm curious." So you start this British company makes a big bet in the U.S. And they, yep. they buy this company at a, Maybe they knew it was a bad time, or maybe they bought before. Well, the they bad already time.
1: have the U.S. bet. So they've right? been there.
0: So they uh,
1: they've been there. They've okay. been there. I mean, they've been around for decades, but okay. it was just a small business in the U.S. And this other company was a small business in the U.S. And actually, North America, because there was a Canadian holding as well. But then together, we were well, we got to maybe top twelve.
0: And what year is this when the merger happened?
1: Two thousand seven.
0: Okay, so two thousand seven, you're the CEO of this merged company, and then you you said it kind of hit the fan in Vegas like three years before, but then it really hits the fan for everybody.
1: Then it really we thought it <laughs> hit the fan. <laughs> <but> Not yet. <laughs> it was just a warm up, right? And then it really hit the fan and just kept going down. The knife just kept falling through about 2010. And then in 10, the UK said, you know, they were just getting punished as a UK builder that they were so distracted
2: Mm -hmm.
1: by North America and they weren't really counter cyclical. So what are you guys doing over there? And eventually, and I was on that board. So I'm there in real time. And the decision was made that we need to sell. And Mm -hmm. so 2010, the decision was made to start the work because I mean, our accounting systems were different. We weren't on U.S. GAAP. It was a whole new world. So we started the work to get ourselves ready to market. And that was in 2010.
0: Okay. So walk us through this past decade because tremendous growth, success, and it comes together. And there's an IPO in there or something somewhere. So walk us through that.
1: So we go out to market in... Some Stuff happened at the end of 10, which made it difficult. We go out to market at the end of 10, early 11. A lot of demand for the company. A private equity consortium is who ends up being the successful bidder of TPG and Oak Tree. Another new experience in life. Never worked with private equity and heard all the horror stories, yes. <laughs> but just hadn't had that experience <laughs> yet. And they bought us, and that uh, we closed the deal in 11. And then in 12, I mean, it was like bullseye. Their timing could not have Mm -hmm. been, I mean, there was a lot of brilliance in their timing and there was some good luck as well, but it couldn't have been any better. And in 2012, I'm like, we just need to start your exit strategy being an IPO. And so we started that work in late 12 and took the company public in April of 13
0: Did you find that the discipline of those investors gave you a goal that had clarity that pushed you to those ends in a different way?
1: You know, these are some of the smartest people I've Mm -hmm. ever met and worked with. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I hate when you ask a question because I'm just so honest with my answer. And we didn't really see eye to eye at the beginning. Uh It was tough, I'll (laughs) be honest. Um, Not because I didn't have the financial discipline, because you, know, you run a company, you have to get generate results, right? Mm-hmm. But you do it through people. And generally, there's not a lot of interaction between private equity and their portfolio companies. They don't know the team.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I'm all about the team. And right. so we, just, we, just have, we did a little bit of this for quite some time. And we eventually had a day of reckoning. I won't go into it. And came to a really good place. And these will be some of my greatest friends for life. Because I learned so much from them, but I can say without it sounding wrong, so I apologize that they learned from me too, that, you know, there's actually people behind the spreadsheets. Mm -hmm. And if you really understand what their needs and the true needs of the business, it looks, things can look really pretty on a spreadsheet, right? Mm -hmm. But they've got to operationalize, and people are the ones that have to make that happen. And that's how you really generate results is people want to do that. So it's, it was an experience of a lifetime. For me, it took my business certainly competencies up to a different level. Taking the company public did the very same thing, mm-hmm. and we had the largest IPO in the world, and I, to this day still do. I
0: the largest IPO in town. home building.
1: And home building in the
0: world. yeah. So home Let's go back for a sec. So I am, I'm am just fascinated with the private equity push and where you pushed back. And it's interesting. I think you're the fourth guest we've had on the podcast who works for a subsidiary or a controlled company of a private equity firm. We've done three other people who worked for Blackstone and their job was to have the, I'm going to make this up, but the people above them had to trust that they had their financial goals in mind but then they had to run an operating company that worked as a real business and as a real culture and culture costs money. So there's a tension there, but each of those guests had shown that balance of understanding both of those goals alongside each other.
1: So let me, I'll give you an example Uh of how we got to know each other and without this, um, because like I said, this is with the honest, the greatest level of respect, but when we were going to get to close the transaction, I mean, this was a big day for our company, right? We had been part of this UK hundred year heritage and we were going to celebrate. I mean, this is a new game because the, the UK couldn't invest in us. This was an opportunity. And we were going to do this video and introduce our new owners. And I you know, shared with them that they would get a call from my marketing guy and he was going to interview you. Just ask you two or three questions. Why do you want to do this? What's the, t- you know, is it the right mm-hmm, time? Mm-hmm. Well, they just want not return the phone calls. And here we're like approaching closing day. And I'm finally like, just get the video done without them. Um, they clearly don't want to engage. So one of them gets anointed to make the call and said, Cheryl, I just want you to know, we just, we talked about it a lot, the investor group, but we just weren't comfortable doing the video. And I'm like, you know, we figured that out. That's okay. But just help me understand why not. I mean, I've got thousands, hundreds, thousands of people that are, you know, in the field. This is a big deal for them. This like the day we close. And he said something that forever stuck with me and it was in the most respectful way. And so I've never repeated this on like a podcast, but... It's like, you know, we celebrate when we sell you Mm
2: -hmm.
1: because our investment will be complete. Mm -hmm. And it's like, knock me over with a feather. That's well, duh. Yes, I get that. And I'm like, wow. I mean, I think that's what I said. I'm like, wow, thank you for telling me that. I mean, I guess I knew that. But the challenge is there's only a few people that are gonna celebrate on that day with you that are really gonna make the money,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but it's the hundreds of people that are gonna make that possible for you. Mm-hmm. And he said, wow, we kind mm-hmm. of screwed that up, didn't we? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it gave us kind of this true understanding. What you're, I get it and what, what you're saying is real and believe me, I wanna help you get there, but you need to help me help you get there because there's a whole team of people that's going to make that
0: happen. Mm -hmm.
1: So it just took time, but we got to a really good place.
0: Yeah. And then you had this great IPO. So then talk about 2013 through pre-COVID.
1: Okay. So great IPO, biggest IPO. We were on a tear. We had this amazing long-term land bank because of the private equity Mm. investment It allowed us to be contrarian to the cycle and really invest big. So it was tremendous. And we started on this growth trajectory. So 2,200 people down to 600 people. And then we bought a company basically every year since then. We started small, one market builders, then we did some multi-market builders. And then the last two acquisitions have been two public builders. And then the last one, you know, $2 billion, very transformational for our company. And that took us to a top five builder in the US. So we have been on this growth tear because of the our recognition of the benefits of scale and what that does to the efficiencies you know, in the building process, in the this very trade-constrained environment we're living with and will for years. There's just not enough skilled people to build the houses. Mm-hmm. People um, aren't aspiring to construction today. Technology, there's things that have a lot more sex appeal than it appears construction, but there's really tremendous opportunity in our industry. So it's been great. And I went trade Matt a day of it. And now it's okay, we've got the scale. Can we really evolve what the customer experience means and really lift the bar of our industry?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because it needs to matter.
0: I was going to ask the question, which is, is bigger, better? And if you don't demonstrate the reason to be bigger, then you know why do it? But you just articulated some of those things in a new way. We started the conversation with these points. But does size allow you to get out of the dark ages on the customer experience and on the manufacturing experience?
1: It certainly gives you R&D, right? I mean, if you're a billion dollar builder, you've probably got some more discretionary dollars to research than if you're a $10 billion business. So just the math behind it. But the way I really, and that's, I think, just sensible, that mm-hmm. it just allows us to get involved in different and new things. and. But I think the real answer for me is how do you be a big company, get the efficiencies of a big company, because you need to. I'm a public company with that scale. You've got to compete. If you don't compete, you're not being competitive when you're buying land. It just goes all the way through. But retain the culture of people and customer. To me, that's the promised land. Mm -hmm. And the customer is not the commodity. They're, They're actually the consumer and what we do to them matters and to their family. And I used to call us kind of the you know, the secret, our special spice was our culture, was our people, and it was kind of the best hidden secret. As we continued to grow, it became harder to hide from who we are, and certainly when we became public, but retaining what allowed us to do that
2: mm-hmm. and
1: kind of the grit of our team, the passion, the belief of doing it different but getting the financial benefits of scale and Mm -hmm. the size of who we are today.
0: Mm -hmm. And if we go back to things that you've said before, one, does McDonald's help? I'm curious. And kind of your background there with kind of customer experience, maybe start there. What allows you to have that kind of focus where it's real? And is there a place where it becomes not real, just a motto, and, and one other example is everyone always loved Disney as the place that people learned service. So there are companies that could be humongous where service is true.
1: Yeah. No, you said it really well. Um, if it's a motto, I won't be here because mm-hmm. it, it's just not. It's just not a mantra. It's truly, I think, for me and our company, it's our legacy mm-hmm. is to change the way this industry is regarded. And there are companies that have done it. So why can't our industry? Why hasn't our industry done it? Because people haven't cared enough to do it. But, you know, I have found myself a student of great leaders, great leadership, great organizations. And Ray Kroc, oh, my gosh. I mean, every day you would walk into his office at one o'clock and we would report the stats of how that customer experience went for every customer that went through that drive through Mm -hmm. and why they had to wait 35 seconds instead of 30 seconds when that was our mantra. And what did we do to make them feel good about it? It was always about how does the customer feel? Uh So that's a one day event. We're delivering a home that you're going to raise your family in. We need to be equally passionate. Sorry. I can really get on my soapbox on this one, Matt, but we need to be equally passionate about a day at an amusement park as you are the home that somebody's buying that they're gonna raise their family. My kids' best friends from when they were three years old are still their best friends today because (laughs) of the community they lived in. That's the memories you talk about for the rest of your life when you get together at the holidays.
0: Talk about building a house versus building a community. They're separate things. They're related and you do both.
1: Yes and no, right? It's the thoughtfulness in how you plan the community. I think COVID is going to actually impact what community means. Um, I've noticed driving around through COVID, because that's what I love to do is drive around communities and look at architecture and our Mm -hmm. homes, is you see like, what are those like plastic signs? where there's like these plastic that says, watch out kids in street. Mm -hmm. Because now kids are, are at home. And so the parks are closed. And so the bikes and the scooters and the skateboards and 10 beach chairs with the parents sitting out on the street. So it's community design and cul-de-sacs and space. All that stuff matters again. It's almost kind of going back to the you know, Mayberry days. But so I think COVID's impacting every part of the relationship with home and community. And the time you spend up front being thoughtful about design and architecture, to your point, Mm -hmm. and spaces and walkability, all those things matter and I think create sustainable communities.
0: Mm -hmm. So a total change of subject, and I'll get personal and you can choose not to answer these questions, but two things are headlines in your background that we touched on on our call before. One is I think you had a life-threatening illness, And two, you're a woman leader in a business that I use the word male, and after male comes bastion, whatever (laughs) that means. So talk about how those two things have influenced you to become the leader and show the passion in the areas that we've talked about.
1: Well, two interesting questions. So the first, the health line. You know, that 2010 period that I mentioned, Mm -hmm. we started the process to sell the company and lo and behold, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And so we had to stop the process. And once I realized I was going to live through it, and I didn't know until actually I woke up from surgery. So uh, when I went into surgery, it was kind of 50-50. It was like, team, make me proud, you know, and the other one is I'll see you in six weeks. Yeah, it's life changing. When you write goodbye letters to like I've said before, when you write goodbye letters to your children, it's life changing. Yeah. And I'm gonna say try without getting emotional because it's my entire family, my whole world was, you know, you don't know. Right. And in the midst of this, I was trying to put together this transaction to save the company and not be sold to another big bad builder so we could right. really take it to a new level. And I was very blessed. I had an amazing surgeon. I came through surgery. I am tumor-free. It's actually 10 years next week.
0: Congratulations.
1: And I get checked every other year, and so far, all is good. You know, I I think, Matt, to your what about the customer and how I am, I've always lived my life as a happy, you know, we have choices, (laughs) and I choose to live life happy, (laughs) and I choose to look for the good in people. The brain tumor tested me. (laughs) because I was scared and I'm like, how can I be this good person? It tested me, but I came out the other side with that on steroids. that don't let the little stuff get you down. Right. Tomorrow that's gonna be gone. So I, I really do live that way. Life is short, every day is precious. I am as healthy as they get. I mean, I don't even get colds, mm-hmm. but I have this brain tumor. And so you just don't really know what tomorrow brings. And that whole mantra about live life every day and do what you
0: enjoy. It's interesting that you do what you enjoy and didn't go, well, I'm going to just become my human being and not my work human being. I think work gives us meaning in a huge way. But at those tipping point moments, many go, oh, work, forget about it. I'm going to make my difference just in my family. I'm not going to go through that stuff.
1: Yeah, and I thought about it (laughs) once I had a choice, right? But now... Think about I've just we've taken this company, this big company, and now we're going to we're going to take it to a whole new level. This private equity company is investing in us. And I have this team I've been with for years and they deserve more. We as a company deserve more. And I had to find a better balance in my life Mm -hmm. um, for sure. Because that's always been hard for me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But giving up where I have so much passion, it doesn't take one thing away from my family or my children because they are my my life. But they want me to be whole, just like they need to have their life, right? They're a grown, they're adults. Mm-hmm. So sitting at home wasn't the answer. I have to live life to the fullest and that's what they wanted for me too. So I, I'm proud of what we did post-tumor, post <laughs> the UK sale. And, um, I've been very blessed with the most amazing team and many of that team. My leadership team was here from the IPO right, and still here today.
0: And what does it mean being a woman in this industry and how has that impacted how you approach it and how you lead in your business?
1: You know, this isn't a politically correct statement, but I truly am gender
2: mm-hmm.
1: blind and colorblind. Um, I love people. Mm-hmm. and we have never had in our organization i mean we can talk about the social unrest we're dealing with today but our numbers around diversity gender diversity are unlike anybody else in our industry and we don't we haven't had any kind of affinity programs what we have is no biases mm. so for me growing up in it you know it was a joke for a long time there was never a wait at the restroom at conferences and But I've had such a belief that just diversity around the table, no matter what kind, is important and makes us better business people. And by the way, the facts support that business is better when you have diversity Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in leadership. You know, I always thought how sad (laughs) for Mm -hmm. them when I ran into people that just didn't know what to do with me because I was a female. I mean, it was a little bit of a game of wackadoo, you know, you just, you, you build relationships one at a time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if people had a different air about them and just couldn't see it, that was their problem. I never made it mine.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, what's the difference? There's probably a soft side, softer side of me. Not all my team would agree with that mm-hmm. because business is business. Would a male bring love to the customer? Would do a roadshow and talk to every team member about loving your customers. Maybe not. So maybe there are mm-hmm. some differences. But I'll tell you, our male colleagues in the organization—they've embraced it. They like take. They build good houses. They want their customer to love what they've done for them. And so it's not sexual. I mean, you love bacon, right? You love football. It's <laughs> Why can't you love what you do and the people around you?
0: Well, I just can't imagine in the home building business, which is a people consumer facing business, I can't imagine who the consumer is today, that the kind of prototypical male dominated business of yesteryear that was, I know how to build sticks together and put them next to each other. I don't think that would fly in an area where your customer is every age, every color, every gender, and some in between. You, if you're not sensitive to that in a consumer-facing business, you're not going to have consumers anymore.
1: You're right, but that wasn't the old way we did it. Right. right. I mean, I remember when I first joined and I went out to Sun City, it was like construction and sales weren't even allowed to talk. It was like a brick wall between them. I mean, you have to talk to people. You relation, No matter what business you're in, relationships matter, both mm-hmm. your internal and your external relationships. So I think our industry is a better place because some diversity has come in. Gender diversity has come in. be completely honest, Matt, we are still horrific Mm -hmm. at the ethnic diversity. We have a long way to go, but Mm -hmm. we're very focused on it. It's got to be organic.
0: Mm -hmm. Two more questions. One about the future and then one advice. So the future question is either what topic haven't we talked about that's going to show change in this business and what might it look like in 10, 15 years, and you could choose environment, climate change, you could choose technology, but kind of look ahead at some of the changes that should and will likely happen.
1: Well, I think the consumer continues to evolve. Mm -hmm. And I think as the consumer continues to evolve, we better be tracking with them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the stat is something by like 2030, there will, you know, English won't be the first language. I mean, do we understand what that means and and the homes and the product and the way to communicate? So I think we're just now, and COVID, like we started, just a silver lining. And you're right, climate change, entitlement, I mean, just everything about, I think our business continues to evolve. I also think this new asset class of build to rent, Mm -hmm. single family homes, I think watch out. I think that's gonna give home ownership a run for its money because people are becoming, we'll see, I think in the next two years, what COVID does, how much of this change we're seeing today is structural and how much of it's emotional today. I mean, will everyone Mm -hmm. go back to the city? My instincts are, yeah, kind of like they did after Mm 9-11, but what's the more permanent changes? So I think we as leaders, as business people, have to continue to be nimble and evolve. Mm -hmm. And if we can do that, I'm excited about where the future takes us, especially about the consumer relationship in our industry. I think it's going to, I think we have forever changed it and we haven't even begun to see the possibilities.
0: But that's true. Last question, always on leading voices is your advice to a young person entering into the real estate business, or maybe in your case, the home building business, what would that be?
1: Oh, you know, I love it. I started down a different path and there was a point in my career where it just took over my body Mm -hmm. and I have so much passion. I mean, there's just something so magical about seeing a piece of land and going back, building houses and moving in. It doesn't matter if it's a first time buyer or somebody who's just having a baby and needs a bigger house or an active adult who wants to make sure they finish out their life. You know, just doesn't matter. There's something so magical about it. And it, what's really special about our industry is you can do it from any, you can be in construction, you can be in sales and marketing and in HR and finance and legal. I mean, it, it attracts all types of professionals, but no matter which of those professions you you have, there's this thing that gets in your blood. So as a young professional, sorry, I went on a rant, but That's as good. a young professional, I would say, Take the time. There's a lot of, I think, impatience in young Mm -hmm. people today. Mm -hmm. Take the time to really explore the opportunities and spend the time to understand. And don't jump all in until you really have found the thing that energizes and takes over. Because if you're going to spend your life in this industry, make sure that you have a lot of passion for it. And once you really have that feeling in your gut, then go for it because the opportunities in this industry are endless for anyone.
0: Well, I'm really happy. You found your passion in real estate and not in hamburgers. <laughs>
1: you, too. I, I, me too.
0: <laughs> Good so for us all. You. We're all healthier and more satisfied yes. for that. Yes. Cheryl, thank you so much. This was a wonderful, delightful conversation. I really appreciate your being on leading voices. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at TerraSearchPartners.com. See you next time.